Hey, this is Janelle. This week we're going to do something a little different. I know usually you're used to listening to a topic or a guest that we pull from our show and cover here in the podcast and produce it for your enjoyment. But this week we're featuring something different. Yeah, a major news story broke earlier this week that we're recording this little message for you. And it was a jury in Minneapolis rendered a verdict in the trial against former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd. And it's such a big story that the whole world was watching that we put together our live morning show in a way that we could examine this topic from so many different perspectives. We had a law professor talk to us about the charges for which the officer was found guilty and how that all works together and how Christians should think about the court system and the law and all that. We had a ethicist, a famous one you've heard of, join us to talk about the whole situation with his death and the conviction, how Christians should think about it. We had a theologian comment on what the Bible tells us about this story and how we can think more deeply about it. So this week what we have is more of a montage as they say, where do they say that, Janelle? France or something? Yeah, I think so. That's what it sounds like. Well, a montage <laughs> where we're going to just play for you a number of these expert discussions so we can all grow closer in our relationship with Jesus in the midst of a really difficult news story captivating everyone's attentions. So let's hit it. You know what we're about to do? We're about to get real. We're about to have conversations that Christians have behind closed doors. The scary ones. The ones that make you feel uncomfortable. That's where we're going. Why? Because we're family. Ustedes son mi familia. So this is the Brian and Janelle podcast. She's Janelle, and I'm Brian. If you don't want to miss anything, all you have to do is hit the subscribe button to get a notification whenever we drop a new episode. This is the Brian and Janelle Podcast. Joining us live to discuss now yesterday's verdict so we can all better understand what actually is happening, uh, Dr. Mark Clausen. He's professor of history and law at Cedarville University. Welcome back, Doc. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm so glad you can help us with this. Since you're a law professor, I want to kind of start with understanding the specific charges of which former officer Derek Chauvin was convicted. And if I'm not mistaken, one of them uh, was manslaughter. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. There were actually three. There was second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and then voluntary manslaughter. Okay, so what's voluntary manslaughter? What does that even mean? Voluntary manslaughter is a kind of of negligence that's criminally liable. In other words, you have a, a level of, of care toward others or uh, in a situation that shows that you, uh, uh, you you don't show that proper level of care and that leads to their death. It's not that you have an explicit intent to kill them, but you're, you're kind of reckless, in other words, another word, way to put it. And in your recklessness, you end up causing serious bodily harm or death in this case which was the manslaughter charge. Now, I've, I, we had somebody text in to say that they agree with that particular charge. I mean, it seems to me that this case with the videos involved, that, that would have been an obvious conviction. Is that fair to yes, say? That was, yes, that was the easiest one, and the one that a lot of people thought would be brought in the first place. 
Um, I think the other two were more difficult. Uh, obviously, the jury did convict, but they're more difficult because they require a higher level of intent. In other words, the, the secondary murder, for example, requires an explicit intent to kill. And that's very different from simply being reckless. Okay, so so you you got to was that murder two? Yes, that was second degree murder. Well, yeah. let's let's go first to murder three because I think he was also yes. convicted of that, right? So, okay, what, there's so many different kinds of murder. What what is murder three? Yes. <laughs> uh, third degree murder is a, is a uh, a kind of complete reckless disregard for human life. Uh, in other words, he doesn't have the explicit intent to kill, but he's so over the top. In other words, with his actions that he shows a complete disregard for human life. Okay, so if if I'm in the jury and I I watched a number of the, you know, the days of the trial, it would seem to me that many experts were claiming the knee on the neck for that long period of time and uh, a person in the prone position for that long period of time could seem to qualify for murder 3. What's your take on how well that was proven and and what you've seen? Yeah, I think I think that was pretty well proven uh, to the to the satisfaction of the jury beyond a reasonable doubt and of course the voluntary manslaughter along with it the difficult one is to read the intent yeah then that gets to murder too that is a questionable charge in the first place there were those who said going into the trial that they may have overcharged on that one which is why they added third degree murder yeah Oh. And it's difficult to prove. It's very difficult to prove. How do uh, you course, prove intent? Well, it's not the same thing as motive to, to start with. You, you're not asking why he did it. You're asking what kind of actions that he engaged in that would show that he intended to kill that person. So the continuous knee on the neck was the proof that they were really looking for. Even when he heard or knew that there were problems, he kept doing it. And that continuing to do it indicated that he intended at least to cause very serious bodily harm. But in this case, he killed him in the process. And so that length of time, refusal to stop, those are the kinds of things that they were looking for in secondary murder. Do you think that was a a reasonable conclusion for a jury to say beyond a reasonable doubt there was intent to kill Yeah, it's a possibility. It's not beyond the realm of reasonableness, but it's a hard one to charge for, hard one to convict for. And I I think this is a 50-50. The secondary murder is a tough one. It really is. I I really did think they might have overcharged on that one. I didn't think the jury would come back with that verdict. So help us out, Dr. Clausen. How could one person be convicted of three different types of killing people? Well, this is, this is actually not uncommon at all. If there's a statute on the books that seems to fit a particular crime, then the state, whatever that state is, that jurisdiction, can charge you with any of those that seem to fit the act that you committed. It's done all the time. It's done more often now than it used to be. And the feds are really, really uh, big on this kind of thing. But in this case, the government believed, the prosecutor believed, the prosecution believed, the district attorney, that there were three possible statutes that would fit that particular that act that he committed. 
And so they charge it with all three. It, it's just a, not, a, not uncommon. Okay. One of the things that came up in my living room while we were watching the verdict was what does this case and this verdict, how does it impact future cases? Does it set a precedence in terms of legislation in this area? Yeah, I think it will certainly set a precedent with legislation, with police reform, for example. There will be a lot of former hedges around police activity that will be probably removed, or there will be attempts to remove them, which will make it easier to charge police with certain acts. And whether it makes it easier to convict them is a question that remains to be answered. There's still an open question as to whether the jury could have felt intimidated yeah, and that's that can be answered on appeal, and there will be an appeal. I I have no doubt there will be an appeal about on this, uh, given some of the remarks that were made by Maxine Waters and then yesterday by President Biden. Yeah, uh, those are are fodder for for an appeal. Is that a legitimate concern? Do you think for the defense that the the, the jury convicted because they heard inflammatory and terrible things from someone like Maxine Waters? It's always it's always a problem, and it should it shouldn't happen. Um, unfortunately, it does, and and the judge attempts to shield juries from things like that, but he he, he can't shield them from everything. And, and I don't know even whether they actually heard those remarks, uh, but if they did, there's always that possibility, and it could it, a judge uh, an appeals court could say, look, they were influenced unduly by this, even intimidated potentially, and so that tainted the verdict. So does an appeal mean do the whole thing over again or just change the the verdict? Well, what an appeal would do if he appeals, when it would go to a, a, a circuit court of a panel of judges, more than likely, and they would decide whether the law had been misapplied in this case and what other technicalities uh, might have been uh, violated that would have tainted the outcome. They're not going to hear all the facts over again. They have the facts already. They're going to look at the law itself and what was done wrong with that. And those remarks could provide um, some kind of information to them that would enable them to say the law, therefore, was misapplied. Okay. The other thing is, I know we talked earlier about how some people felt a relief. It's been a ramp up for many months and all this. But, I mean, we still have sentencing is it po- like what does it look like, and what are your thoughts in terms of what that could look like? Yeah, well, potentially <clears throat> he could get a maximum of seventy-five years uh, if you add all three together, and if they if they run consecutively, that is one after another, they could run concurrently, in which case the maximum would be only forty years. You just take the biggest one, but they also have minimum sentences. So, for example, the secondary murder has a minimum of twelve years. The judge could always opt for a lesser sentence, and in the next couple of weeks or so, probably, he's going to be hearing witnesses from both sides, and the defense is going to make arguments that, well, look, he's, he hasn't done this before, he's not a threat to society, uh, things like this, and therefore his sentence should not be the maximum. And then he'll consider all those things together and make his final decision in about two months. I know sometimes judges can require juries to be sequestered and kind of secluded from society in order to not have them unduly influenced by comments like Representative Maxine Waters. Should the judge have done right. this for the duration of the trial, do you think? Well, he, I know he thought about it. 
I know he gave them a partial sequestration. In other words, he, he didn't want them to go out at certain times, but he did allow them to go home on weekends. And that was an interesting, interesting development. We don't know what they might have heard. We don't know how they might have been, might have been influenced. Um, sequestration in a trial like this probably would have been the best option. Complete sequestration, I should say. Yeah. But then again, hindsight's twenty twenty. You, right. you just don't know. Right. Okay. So I, I also want, want to get your... We're, we're kind of jumping around here, but there's so much to ask. What, what, <laughs> right. One of my questions legally are, what are the protections, just generically speaking, in place for police officers, and why are they there? The big one is qualified immunity, and uh, that's a doctrine that a lot of people have questioned. It's it's often misunderstood, even by the courts themselves. Judges often don't know how to apply it, but basically what it says is, if you do not perform something, if, if, you, if you do an act and you, it isn't clearly the case that you knew that it was wrong, then you have immunity from being sued and immunity from being um, prosecuted and uh, and then convicted and then lo- and then also being sued privately by an individual. Um, it happens all the time. Qualified immunity is, is very often granted. It's being granted a little bit less now, and the courts are actually reconsidering it. But that's the main hedge around police. The other one is police unions who have constructed rules that protect police. They've in, in, enacted rules by way of the city. Cities usually will say, okay, what can we do to help you? They'll, they'll, the city will issue those rules on behalf of the union. Those are the two big ones. And then, of course, you have the main one. The, the, the other main one is just general due process that everybody has. And that's usually a pretty good protection for everyone, uh, even in the case where you don't have qualified immunity. So those are the three big ones. And wouldn't there be a strong case to be made for, you know, those who would want to swing the pendulum too far the wrong way and just go, remove all protections? I mean, those are there for a reason, right? To protect officers? Yeah, qualified immunity in particular. Uh, If you don't have qualified immunity, then there's always this fear on the part of a police officer that anything they do is going to come back to haunt them. Um, Any action they take at all. And really what it was intended to do is prevent... Uh, actual give incentives not to, to commit actions that are clearly wrong. Uh, on, on the edges, you, you know, you can't be questioning these things all the time, every single, single situation, or you paralyze the police completely, and then they can't actually protect people. So now imagine I'm a student in your class, you know, young, handsome, all, all those things. Handsome. In, in the back. <laughs> And I, and I raise my hand when we're done talking about, you know, current events with, with this trial. And I just go, Dr. Mark Lawson, what do we make of this as believers? Like, what's our, what's our takeaway as a follower of Jesus from what happened yesterday? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, uh, as Christians, I think we always should seek justice. And justice does include both sides of the coin. It includes convicting where we think that an injustice has been done and not convicting where we think that it hasn't raised, been raised to that level. So I think we always need to be discerning about what is just. And, it, and also, I think we, we do need to generally trust the process that's been enacted by the authorities that we're supposed to obey. 
and so not engage in violence as a result of the outcomes one way or the other, whatever they might be, uh, but obey the authorities and seek to live in peace as believers. It doesn't mean we don't want to change things. There are things we should change, uh, no doubt, but we participate in the process of changing those things. So I think that those are the things we're, we're bound to do as believers in this whole process. And then from, from your perspective, I mean, there's, there's plenty of people out there who would say, you know, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I honor government authority, America's a great country, the system's perfect. Is there any changes we need to make, do you think, in our, in our criminal justice system? Yes, I, I do. I think qualified immunity has been overdone in certain cases. And the police officers have been given immunity in situations where they were completely wrong, everybody knew it, even the courts would admit it, but then they would say, because of the doctrine, we have to follow it. We have to be careful about redesigning the qualified immunity doctrine in a clear way that's understandable by everyone and creates the incentives not to go too far, but yet to not be afraid to do your job. We do need reforms in that area. How do we get there? What do you do? What's the next step? I think we need to contact our representatives or our city councilmen. We can't do much to to influence the courts, but we can pass statutes and ordinances that will clearly lay out what qualified immunity is all about for us. Because if we have that in legislation, then the courts will follow that legislation. They've basically made it up so far. The doctrine's kind of been made up over time. Any final thoughts for us this morning as we're almost out of time, Dr. Mark Clausen? Well, it, it's, it's a sad case. Certainly a wrong was done. And I think overall, I would say that this verdict was appropriate, except for the secondary murder. I just, I can't say. Uh, I, I would hate to have been a juror on that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a tough one. The third degree murder, the manslaughter, I think were legitimate, certainly more than reasonable. Uh, secondary murder could have been an overcharge, but the jury said it, and the jury convicted, and unanimously, so it's difficult also on the other side to question it. Really helpful information today from Dr. Mark Clausen, professor of history and law at Cedarville University. We love our friends at Cedarville. Go to cedarville.edu for more information to send your kid to a school that uh, proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaches things like law. Mm -hmm. Uh, Moody doesn't have law degrees at Moody, so we we love having great partnerships with folks like Cedarville. So Dr. Mark Clausen, thank you again today. Hope to have you back again soon. Thank you. Hey, it's Brian. I've got one little request. So here it is. We need your money. Okay, that was a little direct, but it's true. We're part of Moody Radio Cleveland, and we're a listener-supported ministry. So people like you who listen to this podcast every week faithfully, and we're grateful for you, you are the ones who keep every episode coming out time and again. And it's not cheap to keep radio stations and podcasts running. So would you prayerfully consider a donation to this ministry? Super easy to do that. Go to moodyradio.org slash Cleveland. Again, moodyradio.org slash Cleveland. And you can follow links there to get your gift in safely and securely right now. Thanks. We're so grateful for a number of individuals willing to join us you know, at the last minute, no one knew mm-hmm. when the verdict would come down yesterday in Minneapolis. Right. And we're certainly grateful for the time uh, and expertise uh, 
of our friend. And now, I mean, he's been on a few times. Can I call him regular contributor? I think I can. Sure, why not? Dr. Russell Moore is an American (laughs) theologian, ethicist, preacher, and president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Welcome back, Dr. Moore. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Am I allowed to call you a regular contributor? Uh, you're at your show. Yeah! <laughs> yeah. Nice Bam. We'll call you that then. Wow. <laughs> Can we be best friends yet, or is that just going too oh, far? Oh, Brian. Sure. Oh, wow. What? Okay. Oh, y'all should go kick it great after the show. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, we're so glad to have your reaction here. I usually go look for it in writing, uh, so I'm, I'm privileged to have you here today to talk to us right away. So let's... Let's go into the, like, the heart-slash-home of Dr. Russell Moore. It's yesterday. You hear the verdicts coming. I'm assuming you watched it. Tell yes. us about your immediate reactions, whether they were in your heart, mind, or out of your mouth. Well, uh, my immediate reaction was a, um, a, a sense of relief uh, in the fact that, uh, it, I mean, this is not something that we have had to have a, a detective uh, type uh, investigation that goes through with a, what happened and who did it, although the, the court certainly had to do that, but we all watched it. Uh, so we've all seen this on videotape. And so there was a sense of, uh, is the jury going to do the right thing? I frankly was uh, worried uh, what would happen if there's a, a hung jury or a mistrial or something else happens in this trial that, that puts the decision off. So I was relieved for that, um, but also, uh, of course, mindful that that there, there really can't be closure to the loss of a, a human being in the way that sometimes we would like there to be. Uh, but it is good to, good to have justice rendered. You know, and I think there's a number of people waking up today, and like I went and looked at Ed Stetzer and made a real brief statement on Facebook, uh, and the vitriol and like just it's like a car wreck in his hundreds of yeah. comments on there. Somebody's going, how can you watch the video, see the trial, and walk away somehow thinking it's bad? What took place, like like in terms of like that he's convicted? Yeah. Well, I think. It, it reveals to you what is behind uh, so much of this that we see, which is not the, oh, well, what about this, and what about that, and, uh, well, I, I just worry about the implications of going to this. Uh, here you have a case where very clearly in front of us we have a human being with someone with a boot on his neck for nine and a half minutes until he dies. Uh, not only do we have this videoed, we had a clear and compelling case uh, made in court, and a, a jury of this officer's peers um, handed down a, a verdict that is, is obviously uh, well thought through and fair and just, and even so, uh, the vitriol comes. So that, that's one more indication, I mean, I know, just from seeing what uh, the sort of thing that I uh, uh, deal with in this, and, uh, and many others as well. What's behind this? But it's um, it's not anything it's not anything noble or good. Do we ignore it then? What do we do with it? No, I don't think we I don't think we ignore it. I think I think what we say is we have a um, we have a long uh, process of discipling people into what it means to be in Ephesians three people of God. Um, and that's going to take that's going to take long uh, and committed discipleship. It's not something that can come about uh, by simply putting together a program or uh, wishing that things could be different. We have to actively I- engage it with the Word of God. 
in terms of that, engaging it and looking to seek for unity within the body of Christ, there's different opinions, like we just said. Let's deal with a couple in particular. This one came in this morning in reaction to the verdict, and this listener said, let's not forget the 19 minutes that Mr. Floyd struggled and fought police, which caused the situation. Shame on Mr. Chauvin for overreacting, but also shame on Mr. Floyd for escalating the situation. Now two people have lost their life. All races need to be reminded to obey police orders, not run, not fight, but obey. What's your reaction? Well, I think in any one of these cases, what we inevitably see are people who want to uh, blame the victim uh, of the crime. Uh, Someone has been murdered and to say, well, yes, 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 that's bad, but he really was to blame for it. I mean, we've seen that for so long. We saw that with Trayvon Martin. We've seen it with a thousand other cases, um, and, and that's lamentable. Is there ever a time when Christians ought to, in some measure, hold victims accountable in some way? I suppose, uh, I mean, there are times when we would say, uh, here's the way to respond to a a situation in the best way. There are times when, in any given court, there are going to be mitigating factors. Uh, And there are going to be some uh, cases that are murky, where we don't know, oh, well, do you have a situation where there's a, a standoff with guns and and uh, someone is not certain that a gun is about to be pulled. Oh, okay, there are those situations. This isn't one of them. This is someone who was who was uh, physically restrained on the ground with a boot on his neck, with children pleading to stop, and others gathered around pleading to stop uh, for nine and a half minutes. That's 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 inexcusable. Which is one of the reasons why you've seen. Uh, so many police officers, including the police union head, saying this is a just verdict. Well, why? Because uh, police officers know, after years of training and uh, dedication to their communities, that this isn't a rogue band of vigilantes. It can't be. Uh, they have they have a, a duty and a calling, Scripture would say, a calling that's been given by God. And so good police officers don't want to see this sort of... Uh, this sort of misbehavior any more than anyone in any profession wants to see people uh, flouting the, the basic uh, ethics and, and callings of that profession. I'd like to get your reaction to another text we received this morning, uh, as I'm sure you see things like this all the time. So, someone says this, answer why when a black gets killed, especially when breaking the law, they protest. When a white gets killed, uh, nothing is protested. African-Americans are showing racism. They are making matters worse and do not know the judgment of God on this attitude. I mean, I, I don't know that, uh, that there should be an adequate response uh, to uh, comments that are really not in good faith. Uh, that's, that's, um, I think that's the sort of thing that you have to say. The work that we have in front of us is, is long and hard, and that's evidence yeah. of it. It makes me sad. Yeah. And, and I, I appreciate your response to that because some things are just, it, you can't fix that today, I think is what you're saying, right? Yeah. 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 Great. Uh, you know, another comment that's been coming up a lot that I think is worth discussing is just, was it two days ago, Congresswoman Maxine Waters made some very inflammatory statements about how uh, protesters should behave. What are we as Christians to make of what she said? Well, I think what she said was uh, clearly wrong. 
uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, one of those reasons uh, being elected officials shouldn't be speaking on the precipice of a, uh, a jury decision in any case. I think that uh, I think what elected officials should be saying at that point is uh, we've made laws and state legislatures also have made laws and we need to make sure that those laws are uh, justly applied and we need a court system that can fairly adjudicate those laws. I think that's uh, a good and right thing for elected officials to say. I think it's also uh, perfectly fine for any elected official to say uh, I'm standing with uh, those who are uh, marching and, and concerned about uh, various issues. That's perfectly fine as well. But to use language of confrontational um, at, a, at a moment like this, I think that is that is clearly out of bounds. And uh, Congresswoman Waters was rightly uh, condemned pretty much across the board for those statements. Well, and that's where I appreciate your ministry, and we try to employ the same thing, and I think the word for it is nuance. It's where you don't have to agree with everything your tribe says. In fact, as followers of Christ, we're called to something different, right? Isn't there an expectation of nuance that the Lord has on us in situations like this? Well, I think that um, what the Lord has for us is a different tribe. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and that tribe is joined together uh, in Christ Jesus and seated at the right hand of God. So we, so we then don't have uh, ultimate loyalty to any other uh, group of people in the sense that we're able to alter our understanding of what's right and wrong based upon where those group of people are going. Uh, instead, we have to say, no, my conscience is, is shaped and formed by the Word of God. I'm not always going to get it right, but the way that I'm going to come to those conclusions uh, will not be uh, what am I, what am I uh, supposed to say because of what my tribe says. Dr. Moore, Brian mentioned the two-word phrase. When I was sharing my raw emotions earlier this in the show in regards to the verdict, I was hesitating to use it. I'm a first-generation immigrant, and I'm Afro-Dominican, and my husband of more than 20 years is African-American. And part of my reaction to the verdict was just, I was excited and relieved, like you said, but a little overwhelmed because I know this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of dealing with and handling systemic racism. Is it valid for a believer to be concerned about that? Because when we mention it here, people go haywire. What are your thoughts about it? Well, I think one of the reasons that some people uh, go haywire yeah. is, is just as with everything else, uh, sometimes people have uh, incorrect understandings of what words mean or have differing understandings of what words mean. So sometimes when people hear systemic racism, uh, what they hear is, well, this means that racism is so endemic in everything that, there, that it's impossible to have a uh, just system. Uh, the, that there is no uh, police action that's valid. There's no court system that's, that's valid. That's not what systemic racism means. What systemic racism means is that, uh, is that racism is not just about uh, what individuals can do to one another, but also about uh, sometimes the structures that they set up that can have uh, bad, bad effects upon uh, vulnerable people. Well, that's a a perfectly biblical understanding of the way that uh, sin and unrighteousness works. As Isaiah said before God, uh, I am 
a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Book of Proverbs is talking about not just what we do one-on-one with uh, one another, but also about unequal scales and about unjust scales. Well, that's a, that's a system. And so we understand that when it comes to uh, other issues. Uh, for instance, abortion. Uh, I remember hearing one time a, a more mainline minister that I knew to be pro-choice on abortion stand up and say, you know, if, if people would just, uh, if, if our uh, young people would just obey what the Bible says about sexual morality, we wouldn't have to worry about abortion. And everyone said, amen. Uh, but I knew what he meant by that is we don't need laws uh, because instead you just tell people to, to do the right thing individually and they do it. Well, no, you need both, because uh, is abortion an individual moral issue? Yes. Is it also a systemic issue when you have uh, an abortion industry uh, seeking to persuade people to have abortions, when you have governments that are funding abortions? Yes. So you have to deal with both the individual uh, heart issue. You also have to deal uh, with the structures and systems that are unjust. The same thing is true here. So my friend Janelle, as she told you, is Afro-Dominican. Her husband's African-American. Uh, I'm a white evangelical, pretty much as white as you're going to find, my friend. Uh, <laughs> why should I care about systemic racism that doesn't affect me if I'm a follower of Jesus? Well, in the same way that you might say, uh, why should my appendix care about what's going on in my liver, or why should my uh, foot care about my brain tumor? Uh, because you're part of a body, and, and our body, we belong to one another in the body of Christ. So what hurts one part of the body hurts uh, the rest of the body, and, and we're a, a people who belong to one another. So that means that what's affecting someone uh, who's a brother and sister in Christ or a potential future brother and sister in Christ, someone who's made in the image of God, is going to affect me. And I, I think that that uh, you, you see this happening uh, in the early church, uh, and it's awkward and it's hard. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we have all the epistles being written about how for people to care about each other and to, and to bear one another's burdens. Uh, but that's what happens when you come into a body united by the Spirit. And I think there's always a tendency uh, in, our, in our flesh. There's always a tendency when we see someone hurting uh, to say, well, who is my neighbor? But Jesus has answered that question for us. That's um, so encouraging, and I love to hear your heart in this. One question I have is I know there are people listening that are hurt by the church's response in this context. So like you said, we are one body, but even within the body, you still have the liver that's like, I don't care what's happening over there in the stomach, or what's, why is the stomach tripping, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Can you just share some encouragement in terms of how to bring healing for those who feel hurt and even feel rejected and separated because of the attitude from brothers and sisters like Brian, who are Caucasian evangelicals and just don't see it and some don't care? How do you bring healing in people of color? What is some encouragement you have? Well, I, I think I would distinguish between uh, people who don't understand and they don't see what's happening and they don't see what's going on. And those, those are people who often, as they do, uh, 
move move along. I mean, as with with everything else, and from the people who are hostile, uh, because I think what's what's being revealed is we do have a horrific problem in evangelical Christianity of something that is completely uh, out of step with the gospel. And uh, racism is not just some sort of a social view that has to be worked out. Racism is a different religion. I mean, this is what the Scripture speaks to all the way back to the very beginning, an idolatry of the flesh that is inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that has to be uh, that has to be understood and has to be taken on uh, at the root. And so, to, to some degree, I think what some people would say with hurting uh, African American and other uh, minority population Christians in the United States uh, is to say, well, just just sort of heal from the hurt, and we'll, we'll try to find a way to be unified. We have to be unified, but we have to be unified uh, around Jesus. And uh, that means if Jesus is Lord, racism has to go. And I, I think any sort of unity that says we're going to have unity by finding a way not to address the consciences of something that is dangerous, not just for people that, uh, not, just for, uh, not just for African-American people, that it hurts, it hurts the racists themselves. Mm-hmm. If we really believe in judgment, if we really believe in sin, then this means that racism doesn't just hurt people, it can send people to hell. And so we have to be, uh, we have to be clear about that. Dr. Russell Moore, again, is not only a regular contributor, but he's also, to this show, but he's also an American evangelical theologian, ethicist, preacher, president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and my BFF. Yeah! So, Dr. Moore, if folks want to get more connected to you and you're thinking on this and other issues, how can they, how can they do that? Uh, They can just go to russellmoore.com, and there's uh, some resources there. Wonderful. Thanks again for your time, Dr. Moore. We can't wait to have you back. All right. Thanks so much. Welcome back to the show, Doc. Uh, it's always good to be with you. Dr. Rydelnik, yesterday was a major current event that took place. You know, at, at Moody Radio, we try to talk about today's issues from a biblical perspective to help people take their next step in their walk with Jesus. So help us understand, um, like, what's your reaction, Dr. Rydelnik, of, about the, the verdict yesterday of former officer Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis? Wow. Uh it seems to me that thinking biblically, you know, we go back to the Old Testament. I think a lot of people misunderstand what the Old Testament says, where it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If you go back to Exodus 21, that is, a lot of people think it, it is sort of vindictive, but it's not. Uh, if you look at the context, it says that the person must pay according to the judicial assessment. If there's an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. And so... Uh, two aspects of that. There has it was designed so that it would be judicial, not personal. It's not no vengeance, no personal vengeance of the families, no no Hatfields and McCoys, hmm. but rather it should be judicial. 
and then uh, it should be uh, the punishment should fit the crime. That's why that's what eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth means. So that uh, you know, if you, if you have a tooth knocked out, you don't kill the person. Right. Uh, uh, and so uh, I think that that those are good principles, and they are carried over into the New Testament. For example, in Romans 13, the government's given the authority of the 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 by God to and the power of the sword, which means even up to the point of 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 uh, capital punishment, which I believe is in, not necessarily in this case, but in some cases, uh, the, the the government's authority and the government carried this out, and there was a a trial. There are going to be people who will question the fairness of the trial because of its location. There will be people, uh, there may even be an appeal based on what uh, a congressman woman, I believe Waters, Mm -hmm. uh, said by calling the people to confront and unless uh, the convictions are there. And so there may be an appeal based on her prejudicing the jury uh, in some way. But nevertheless, I do believe there was a fair jury trial and we should accept the authority of that. I think that uh, that's how we can have some level of justice. Uh, and and uh, the only, I, I guess my only concern is, I think we should be more somber yeah. and, and serious in accepting this. I look back at, I've been trying to look historically, when Israel convicted Adolf Eichmann for being the leader of this, the murder of six million Jews in Europe. He was the Gestapo officer in charge of the final solution. He was captured in Argentina in 1960, put on trial in Israel in 1961. And here's a man that was responsible for the murder of six million Jews. And it was purely because of racial hatred. And there, were not, there was no celebrations, but a somber sense of justice. Mm-hmm. And I really... That's how I feel uh, in this. And I really, I, I think that we ought not to, uh, the fact that someone is being convicted of a very serious crime ought to make us somber when, when it happens and not, not throw a party. That's my opinion. Well, and, and that's a perfect lead into our, our second question on this. We were earlier talking about how to respond in these situations. And there's two Proverbs that I know work together, but we need your help. So Proverbs mm-hmm. 24, 17 do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Paired with Proverbs twenty-one fifteen, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to the mm-hmm. evildoers. So, how, how do we not rejoice but have joy? I think uh, one is uh, it's like don't throw a party. That's what don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Uh, the other one is there's a sense of joy in our hearts. I'm not saying we shouldn't feel that, but I uh, I think there's a sense of of calm and that God is uh, just that we have, that's the kind of joy it's speaking of when, when justice happens. So then how can we today, you know, we got people are driving to work or whatever, are going to be on a Zoom call. How can they be mm-hmm. a, an ambassador for Christ when this topic undoubtedly comes up? Uh, I think that one of the things that anytime someone falls, and anytime there's justice like this, uh, we have to say that we will all stand before the great bar of justice, every one of us, and the sad part to me is, though I, you know, I've not, there is a gradation of sin. A lot of people think all sins are alike. They are not. Uh, Jesus talked about lesser and greater uh, commandments. 
you know, tithing mint and cumin yep. is uh, not as important as the weightier matters of the law, like loving justice and truth. Uh, so there, there certainly, but we all going to stand at the bar of justice. Every one of us and every one of us is convicted before a holy God. And the only hope we have is that Jesus took the punishment that we deserve and was raised again. He died and rose again. And that's our only hope. I would use that as the fact that we're all going to stand before the bar of justice. That's my opinion. And it's one of the reasons why I think that when, whenever I see something happen where, let's say, it, we, we just talked about this a lot, when leaders fall, yes, spiritual leaders, what do we do? We take heed when we stand lest we fall. And the same thing when some, uh, I have to guard my heart. Is Does my heart uh, have the kind of uh, callous disregard of life that I think happened uh, uh, with, with George Floyd uh, by Derek Chauvin? Do I have that callous disregard for life? God forbid I ever do. I, I want to look at my own life and I want to make sure that I care about life the way God does. Hey, hold up. Where are you going? You know you liked your time with us. You want more. So look down, hit that button right there, subscribe, and you'll get updated episodes and then you can hang some more. And guess what? You can help us. How? A five-star rating. You can also hang with us live weekdays 6 to 9 a.m. Interact with us, talk with us. Download the Moody Radio app. Or at brianandjanelle.org. And we don't put all this together all by ourselves. There's some great people behind all this production. We want to thank Ron Eastwood, Kelly Ryder, Paul Carter, Mike Reynolds, and our awesome and fearless leader, Josue Villa. And finally, this podcast is a production of Moody Radio in Cleveland, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Well, Brian, that's a wrap. Yep.